0: Welcome to the Wealth is in the Details podcast. In this podcast, financial planner Peter Raskin helps families and business owners understand and prepare for their wealth journey. Along the way, thoughtful and detailed planning can provide clarity and confidence as clients confront a multitude of financial decisions. Listen in as Peter shares stories and insight into people's wealth journeys. Now, let's get into today's podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to Wealth is in the Details with Peter Raskin from Raskin Planning Group. Today, Peter has a guest, and that special guest is Jeff Wildermuth, a portfolio strategist at Eris Investment, a division of AssetMark. Eris specializes in building sustainable or socially responsible investment portfolios for individuals and families. Peter, how are you today?
2: I'm doing great. I'm really excited about today's uh, podcast. I think it's just a really interesting interesting subject.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've I've heard of uh, socially responsible investments. You and I've talked off air before about um, different strategies and different things like that. Uh, So I'm really excited that you brought Jeff on the show today.
2: I am too. So Jeff, why don't we begin? Tell us a a bit about yourself and your firm just to give our listeners a sense of uh, where you're coming from. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks
3: for having me. Uh, You know, certainly appreciate the chance to talk about this. Uh, I've been uh, in investment strategy for probably about the last 20 years or so. Uh, First with a firm at SEI, just outside of Valley Forge, and in the last uh, six years with Aris, uh, as as was mentioned, a division of AssetMark, you know, specializing really in goals-based investing, spending a lot of time on getting to investor objectives and building commensurate portfolios to meet those objectives.
2: So Jeff, uh, tell us a bit more about Aris as a firm. Aris uh, uh,
3: was really uh, started uh, around uh, the mid nineteen seventies uh, in the state college area. Um, you know, really brought along uh, in the last couple of decades the ecosystem that surrounds the university. So uh, pensions and foundations, employees of the university, the town that obviously has has sprung up around. Um, you know that there is certainly a lot of uh, a lot of diverse needs, a lot of uh, uh, you know investment strategies that need to be created to, to service that that community and it's been very much a community firm uh, since its inception
2: now Aris specializes in sustainable or or socially responsible investing and could you give us a, a kind of a brief review of, of that kind of strategy and 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 just give give our listeners a sense of what it's all about absolutely I, I you know I think it's it's really critical we you know when we talk about sustainable investing
3: we social responsible investing. uh, Some people refer to it as impact investing. You know, what we really sort of identified in the conversations that we were having with advisors and with investors uh, over the last, you know, decade plus is really sort of a desire to have input into the portfolio, right? To have a say in uh, either, you know, companies or allocations, um, you know, or approaches that maybe didn't agree uh, with, you know, investors' beliefs or, or what they were trying to accomplish, Um, And really now in the last couple of years, a a desire to really get impactful type of investments in there, having investments in portfolios that serve the greater good. So the portfolios that that we've built uh, over the last 10 years have been fluid to sort of respond to that and adapt to that uh, messaging that we're getting from the market. So. You know, for us, it was really just a natural uh, outgrowth of the conversations that we were having when we were interacting with advisors and building portfolios to sort of drive home, does the portfolio meet what the client is looking for?
2: Yeah. W- one of our earlier conversations, Jeff, you, you mentioned that this was, this was not a, 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 an approach that came from Eris. It, it, it's an approach that's come from the marketplace, in a sense. And you've, and you've, you've brought that many steps forward, but I thought that was really interesting.
3: Yeah. It's, it's been, you know, uh, it's been a very organic kind of process, this entire movement around ESG. Um, Peter, it's a, it's a great point that, you know, most of the time, you know, having been in the industry, as long as we have, you know, we're so used to strategies being sort of created, um, you know, in, in in a laboratory somewhere and then brought to market to then, uh, sell to investors, and you know this is very much the opposite of that. You know this type of values based investment approach is very much directly uh, attributable to what the marketplace wants and what they're telling us is important. And that's certainly a very refreshing aspect to this: is that we're able to sort of meet in the middle in terms of taking investment uh, thought leadership and and investment acumen and and market experience uh, on our side and have it meet where the clients are coming from which is having some input and say in the portfolio being able to have a little bit more transparency into the companies that uh, he or she owns it's it's uh, it's certainly a different dynamic i think that you would agree that it normally is the case
2: yeah definitely what what's your sense why is it that that investors in today's age are 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 concerned about this what what what's what's brought it to the to to where we are now and and, and then, who, who are these typical investors? Well, it's a good question. I, I think certainly the
3: availability of information, it, it plays no small part in this. Uh, we are inundated with and able to access information at record speeds. And so it naturally leads to a curiosity about what can I see? What about that uh, peering through that sort of curtain that was previously there? allows me greater insight as an investor. Um, You know, that's certainly a big part of this is that there's just, I think, a desire because there's an availability for investors to partake in this um, in a way that they couldn't before. Uh, So that certainly is a big part of it. Um, You know, two, I don't think we have to, you know, think too hard about what we're seeing and hearing every day in terms of just a very highly charged atmosphere, Um, whether it be, you know, environmental, which obviously dates back and where most of these values-based portfolios started to more now around the social and the governance aspect, there are, you know, issues that people are willing to uh, tackle. Um, they're anxious to to address them. And I think that's part of this as well. You're you're seeing a little bit more of an activist generation, uh, not necessarily, you know, younger as in, you know, right out of school, although that certainly is part of it too. But, you know, uh, you have a generation of investors that want their portfolios to make a difference. And so when you have that availability of information and this desire to sort of make a change or at least be able to have some control in a world that sometimes feels out of control are certainly huge drivers of this movement.
2: So it seems to me like um, the investor, the, the, the many investors are asking more from the companies that they're investing in. They're saying, we want... Th- Certain kinds of behavior, and we want evidence that you're that you're you're implementing the, that kind of behavior in your in your day to day work, and 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 companies have responded, and they are providing some of that data. Is that is that is that accurate? I think it's absolutely accurate, um, and I, I'm glad that you brought that up because it also you know ties in
3: with. You know, AssetMark and Eris and are, in obviously, investment management firms, as are you know the Goldmans of the world and J.P. Morgans and so on and so forth. Well, not only are we being asked to create strategies that meet those those standards that investors are demanding of us, but we, as companies, to your point, have to start thinking about: Are we walking the walk? Right? How does our firm deal with our labor force, and how is our company, if we're publicly traded, which AssetMark is? How is our board comprised? what are we doing to better the community? So it's really, you know, we're almost uh, as up close and personal to it as anyone, because we've been building portfolios to meet that need. And now we as companies are being held to that same standard.
2: Yeah. Which is,
3: I think a good thing. I think so too. I think so too.
2: So how does, um, how does this kind of, of strategy, this what we call ESG um, investing, how does it actually get implemented? You know, Paint that picture for us. Sure, um, I, I think you know it.
3: It's probably you know to to put it in terms of just broadly speaking, what is it that a portfolio like this is attempting to do, and then we can talk a little bit about you know what that process might entail. But generally speaking, when we talk about a value-based portfolio, whether we have sort of a faith orientation or more of sort of an an ESG orientation, we're looking to basically. Base stock selection on a set of criteria that adds in that lens, right? So, not only does a company have to be, you know, attractive from a valuation standpoint or show earnings growth or be able to have a very competitive edge or, or moat, if you will, there has to be additional characteristics to that company that make it attractive from this sort of values based perspective, right? Are they carbon polluters? Are they offenders in terms of? Uh, child labor laws, right? Are they uh, engaged in product involvement that is objectionable? It's simply sort of an extension of looking at a company through the traditional lens and adding this sort of additional perspective onto it to determine, is this the kind of company that I want to own in my portfolio? So from that standpoint, I think that the the thought process behind it is pretty direct. You know, generally what we're trying to do is screen out those names that are problematic or objectionable, perhaps be able to to include some companies that are very positive influencers, very very score very well as it relates to these metrics to, to, to sort of boost that. Component of the portfolio. And then also have sort of this this element of advocacy, whether the, the, the investment managers we're utilizing are directly engaging companies to try and change policy, or if they themselves are giving back to their community through programs or otherwise, we're looking for that sort of third component, right? So not just to get rid of stocks, not just to look at ones that are good, but then what kind of what kind of impact are we having on the world around us, and that—that that in totality—is what we're trying to deliver inside of an investment portfolio.
2: Um, one of the things that I understand, my understanding is being done, is that there's a, a, a scorecard. You know, you're you're gauging a company's commitment to good behavior or what you would define as good behavior. So, talk a little bit about that 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 scoring.
3: Yeah, and I think it's really important to realize that this is still a very Uh, fluid and and sort of nascent uh, movement, right? We're seeing tremendous impact and inflows and interest in values-based portfolio. But as it relates to scoring, um, we're going to continue to, as as many of the other providers out in the, the environment are as well, to fine tune that. But in general, what we're thinking about when we're scoring a company is really kind of two building blocks. The first is what are the inherent risks from an ESG standpoint that a company has just by being in the business that it's in, and then how does management address that those risks? So, if we look at companies like you know media companies, and that could be any of the mega cap names to just something that's a little bit more simple, there is a lesser sort of generally speaking, ESG risk associated with those names because they aren't out there drilling you know, in various parts of the world or you know, dumping you know, their, their you know, byproducts into rivers and lakes and so forth. Right? There's a smaller footprint that they have. And so from the very get-go, you might look at a technology company versus a multinational oil company and say, well, the material risks that are built into their businesses are different. So one is, is certainly more attractive than the other. But the way that you can sort of compensate for that, or at least be able to maybe level the playing field, is how does that company go about doing what it does? How does it run its business? Um, How does it treat its labor force? Uh, What are its supply chain relationships? What are some of the other aspects of its business that might call into question their viability from an ESG standpoint? Now, I use companies like Amazon, you know, with obviously some of the the recent labor strife uh, that we had last year, uh, does not score particularly well in, in that regard. So even though you know Amazon is ubiquitous at this point, you know has basically taken over the world as just a retailer, and many people would think, you know, generally speaking, doesn't pose that much of an issue from an ESG standpoint. They have you know facilities that they're building. I can't turn around without a truck being, you know, passing me on the road that's making a delivery, right? So you certainly have emissions that are kind of coming from that. Uh, and then you have this, this sort of ethical uh, component to it. I'll use another company like Wells Fargo, right? A bank, obviously a, a very uh, blue, you know, bellwether, blue chip kind of company, uh, longstanding and so forth, but obviously some ethical concerns in the last couple of years around opening up accounts, right? It doesn't, sometimes the business itself, at first glance might not seem problematic, objectionable, but how they go about it certainly can. And so that's where we're sort of trying to get at that management component. And so you can find oil or energy companies that score really well because of what they're sort of delving into or the management around the risk that they have and low scoring companies in terms of just inherent from their their. Product involvement, but their management is very poor and leads them to a higher risk score. So it really takes both of those elements together to look at a, co- a company in totality. Mm-hmm.
2: So you're not necessarily screening for uh, against an industry like a fossil fuel industry. You're not saying we're never going to own uh, those those stocks. Yeah, energy is a great sector to look at
3: when it comes to a question like that, right? Because Energy is a very uh, broad and generalized term. So even though there is an energy sector of the index, energy names are, are very different. Whether you're drilling for it, or you know, piping it from one place to another, or storing it, or moving into things like renewables or wind, right? All these companies fall under, you know, the auspices of some utilities of of energy. And so the we the way we approach it is, you know, we'll look at energy in kind of sub subsets. So it could be things like thermal coal, uh, thermal coal, it could be palm oil, it could be oil sands, right? Things that are destructive directly to the environment, uh, that are problematic in terms of just you know energy usage or land usage, and we might look at those companies as being what we would want to quote unquote screen away. But staying away from a generalization around energy. So your point is well taken that we could very well end up with you know a name that maybe ten or fifteen years ago would have raised some eyebrows. Um, I come back to Exxon quite a bit because of just this massive push into cleaner energy, uh, some of the partnerships that they have forged, uh, the fact that their board composition has changed fairly radically uh, within the last year or two in terms of having a very activist, environmental, you know, eco-friendly aspect to it. So while we might not own that company today, there is certainly a difference between when scoring an Exxon versus maybe a Chevron versus a Royal Dutch, and so that's one of the reasons why looking at ESG scoring is is so interesting, uh, is that you can really get at the nuances of of these companies and score them on their merits.
2: Yeah, um, I ju- I just think this is just so fascinating to think about all the aspects that can go into a a, a, a company's score, and it, it, I think it tells you something about their broad perspective, and uh, you know how how are they dealing with. Diversity up and down uh, in the in the executive amongst executives, the board, employees, diversity, equity, inclusion. You know how how does a company deal with all those things? And and I think there's there's evidence that those companies that deal with those issues well and and are diverse can be more productive, can be more creative, can um, can have better long term results. I mean that
3: that's certainly the thesis you know, in an indirect way behind what, you know, a values-based portfolio is, right? It is almost by default in some ways, a quality portfolio, right? You're betting on quality to rule the day. And so if you have companies that are able to minimize risks that they can control and be able to, you know, adapt business models and be able to adapt personnel, you know, the thought there is, you know, certainly in in a period like you know March of twenty twenty, or you know dating back to you know two thousand and eight, it's not to say that these companies you know won't go down, right, or they can't suffer through periods of of weakness. But generally speaking, the thought is these companies are by default perhaps positioned better to recover uh, because of of this thought given across their business to all these risks that could. Potentially dent the stock price, right? So I'll, I'll use two further examples. Uh, the first would be Tesla. Within the last year or two, um, I've referenced the fact that you know, on a number of occasions, you know, Tesla's looked at very much as you know a darling in terms of the electric car space. Certainly one of the the first and most powerful movers. And so you know, on its surface, right, an investment in Tesla seems like something that's good for the environment. But when you hear of them talking about taking uh, Bitcoin as a form of payment uh, or perhaps even investing in Bitcoin something that which comes off as just a kind of a, a headline you know one day kind of a headline um, actually does have impact because Bitcoin you know whether you feel good or about it uh, bad about it as an investment um, has has an environmental impact to mining it and so there's a negative sort of mark that goes against a firm like Tesla when they come out and talk in in that fashion or Even engage in it more directly. And if you remember correctly, I think Elon Musk actually backed down a little bit uh, from from that position. So, you know, that's certainly the kind of thing that we're thinking about here is, you know, in totality, everything that a business touches, the way that it goes about, you know, engaging the public, manufacturing its product or service, there are ripples, if you will, like throwing a stone into a pond.
2: Yeah, interesting. From um, an implementation standpoint, how does ARIS? implement these investment these investment strategies?
3: There are two main approaches to, to what we're we're doing, whether it be a mutual fund only approach or what we refer to more as a custom high net worth approach. Uh, they're both based on on very similar thinking. And that is we're engaging third party managers to round out our proprietary asset allocation. And we do that Uh, Because it's an acknowledgement on our part that there are experts in the field, in large cap and small cap, international and emerging, that have ESG built into their core, into their philosophy and into their identity, dating back decades. To be able to tap into that skill is a really critical deliverable on our part. So when we build a portfolio, particularly in the mutual fund, we're tapping into firms like Calvert and PAX. And Walden and Parnassus, right? These are firms that date back 30 or 40 years on some of their mutual funds that have some orientation towards faith based or ESG or socially responsible, right? So they have decades of experience and skill that we can leverage. Uh, Within the high net worth space, we're able to use that exact same chassis if you will, and incorporate also some individual stock management, the ability to look at whether particularly large cap or maybe even in some cases, small cap and international and be able to do some very custom and detailed stock selection uh, that we can either build around a client's needs, so if they have certain names that they'd like to add in and, and restrict, we can do that. Or if you know we want to take a position that they own and build around it, we can do that there. But the thinking is still very much the same, which is leverage these skilled third-party managers and the asset allocation that we determine along any number of risk profiles, and then where possible, be able to customize to individuals' needs.
2: And my understanding is that there are also. Um Index uh, or or ETF exchange traded funds that are ESG oriented as well.
3: There are, um, you know, so that's certainly an area that has, you know, obviously expanded incredibly over the last two decades. The, the, the passively managed index uh, space around ETFs, and I think it's interesting that you you know raise ETFs. You know, the largest known, you know, sort of family of of those exchange traded funds, of course, is BlackRock, uh, which owns iShares. And BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, within the last year, has been a very strong advocate of um, sort of walking this walk around values based. And he's talking about BlackRock as a firm, right? He's talking about their identity. And so he's a big believer. Um, in this, this shift. And so to have you know, an investment vehicle in portfolios that, that matches that, uh, that can sometimes cost reduce is also something that you know, we want to be able to build into our ecosystem. So generally speaking, as an active manager, we're going to have actively managed funds and SMAs. Um, but where appropriate, we'll also incorporate in a passively managed index to be able to get that asset class very cost effectively.
2: Jeff, when, I, when I'm talking to uh, clients about this approach, and and some some clients ask, you know, do I need to sacrifice returns, you know, or or, or is this going to cost me more? Could you could you comment on that?
3: Yeah, well, it's probably it's a great it's been a great mystery I think for a number of years, or at least one of the things that people utilize as maybe an obstacle to to changing an investment strategy that's long-term and and proven out like you know traditional portfolios have been. uh, The long and the short of it is that there's increasing evidence through meta-studies and and additional research that the outcomes related to a values-based portfolio very heavily skewed towards neutral to positive. In many, I think some words, upwards of 60 to 70% of the outcomes on those studies trended towards splitting between those two outcomes. And a lot of that is you know one being able to execute better on some of these by, on the part of some of these managers in the ESG space uh the, the greater availability of data and the, and the fact that companies are more are required more than ever to present data cre- you know create present data and share data and also the makeup of what we would consider to be the market has changed dramatically in the last 20 to 25 years. The, the, the concerns around performance really stem from a time when oil companies and large industrial companies were the biggest components of the S&P 500. So to think about removing those companies off the top because of what they were investing in and the products that they that they were involved with was, was a challenge and, and considerable. You, know, you, may ret- you may actually end up removing 30% of the index at one point you know, in, in the late 1980s when Exxon was the biggest company in the world. That isn't the case today. Uh, the, the nature and the constituency of, of the index has changed significantly. Most of the companies that make up the index now are these what I would consider to be newer economy firms and companies. Uh, so you know, off the top- you know, you see things like carbon emissions and carbon footprints and, and environmental impact drop dramatically just because of the businesses that they're in. And so taking an Exxon out of a portfolio or a Chevron out of a portfolio isn't as problematic as it might've been. And so you're able to sort of replicate more of the index. You're able to do this stock selection and do your screening and still have 90% of the universe from which to still choose your portfolio. Uh, so I certainly think that's a, a big part of the driver of some of the really, you know, positive performance around value space portfolios, Uh, you know, quality being certainly a a second. So if quality is, is doing well, there certainly is going to be, you know, a natural gravitation of some of these, these names to do well additionally. So, yeah, I think performance, you know, it's interesting too, Peter. One of the things that I've been very surprised about is more and more, Investors who care about this and investors who really want the portfolio to reflect what they you know sort of hold near and dear are really less concerned with the performance in the traditional sense of again, you know, against an index or against some type of a benchmark. There's an acknowledgement that clearly it's an investment vehicle with, with an, a goal to attain a certain level of either appreciation or income or, or something along those lines. But there seems to be less of a concern around. Keeping pace with a benchmark that, at the end of the day, does not reflect that which is important to the investor, um, and so it's almost like there's more of a, a more of a sense of forgiveness uh, or latitude on on part of investors. Whereas, conversely, if an investor who who is deeply entrenched in this finds a holding or two or three in the portfolio that they don't like, that presents a bigger problem to them. So it's it's refreshing in the sense that. Um, The integrity of the portfolio is being focused upon with with sort of greater uh, importance and performance is, you know, maybe secondary. Uh, But the fact of the matter is performance has been very good uh, in the last couple of years, last year in particular. And, you know, that obviously isn't going to be the case every year. Uh, There's going to be, you know, periods of time when maybe a momentum, you know, type of, of stretch might drive uh names higher or you know a sector like energy which you know again we don't exclude it as a whole but we're certainly going to be probably lighter on an energy than than maybe an, an active manager was leaning into that space and if that recovers significantly you know you could find a portfolio lagging but uh again that's that's a forgivable sin for a, a lot of these uh investors who care much more about what's in the portfolio than necessarily keeping and, and being tied to a benchmark
2: yeah. And, and I think what's what's important for our clients and the people that we speak to is, is about meeting objectives. Are they able to do what they want to do when they want to do it over their their lifetime and, and their children's lifetimes? And so returns are, are often very important, but risk management is also really important. And if this approach in theory is reducing overall risk that, that, that those those risks that might be controllable then that's a value and over time my sense is that clients are going to get to the same place they're going to be able to meet their objectives so if these value based investing st- investment strategies are important then there it's not a sacrifice of returns
3: yeah that's right and and you know the performance discrepancy you know between any you know in any one year, you know, could certainly favor one over the other. Uh, I look at 2020 in particular. Um, you know, some strategies that were, you know, very much loaded into those tech names, which were the only things that seemed to really do well when the rest of the market was absolutely falling apart. You know, that's not, you know, to pardon the pun, that that's not a sustainable approach over you know, over any length of time, right? Those names aren't going to outperform forever. And we're certainly seeing evidence of that this year where some of those large tech names have been punished pretty severely. You know, it's in in over time, right? And that's the thing about diversification, right? It doesn't work every time. It works over time. And that's kind of what sustainable investing or values-based investing is is too, right? At, At its core, right? Over time, right? The belief is that these companies that, you know, are attractive from Traditional financial characteristics as well, but also attractive from some of these ESG standpoints. Over time, is a competitive is going to offer a competitive return and will allow the investor to achieve their their goal or objective as you stated.
2: Jeff, how does a, how does a, an investor pivot from a traditional non socially responsible or value based investment strategy to an ESG investment strategy, and, and what do they need to consider in, when they do that? Well clearly,
3: you know the first you know step in that process i think would would be you know the investor identifying certain themes that are important you know to them right? as far as you know are they really trying to exercise some type of a viewpoint in their portfolio right that requires uh, maybe a different level of, of portfolio construction right that requires a different focus because I will you know, Before I kind of expand on that, I will say that a lot of firms, I've been pleasantly surprised by this, a lot of firms have been incorporating ESG into their normal process, their normal stock selection process, without actually calling it an ESG investment. I'll use uh, Capital Group as an example. You know, they, they have sort of ESG built into their mechanisms and, and the way that they are looking at Companies and the way they optimize their portfolios. They just don't brand their strategies ESG and it's not across their entire platform. So, you know, that's sort of a long way of saying that this thinking is already, you know, creeping into or has been in place within the industry, right? Even without it being designated as as a a values based portfolio. But, you know, to go back to your original question, you know, if, if there's an identification of things that are important, whether it be causes, whether it be you know industries or so forth that maybe pose a moral kind of complexity to an investor if, there, if there's something about a traditional portfolio that isn't reflective of you know what it is that they really believe in and, and what they want their money to be going towards then clearly you know that's the first I think that would be the first step towards maybe identifying that that a values-based portfolio might make more sense and then you know really it's just a, a matter of you know engaging you know, their advisor and talking about, you know, how they can go about sort of exercising that viewpoint, right? What are the different levers that they want to be able to have access to? Is it something as simple as they want to be able to put a few names in that they feel good about, that they want to be able to keep a few names out that they feel bad about? Is there something, you know, broader that they're trying to sort of achieve? A lot of it is is, is an, an outpouring as sort of, I, I began my comments, um, In our discussion, is sort of an outgrowth of the normal planning dialogue that takes place. It's think just it's an additional section, you know, that we kind of tack on to it, where we talk about those things. You know, what are the things that are important to them, right? Not just oh, you're another year older, you're closer to retirement, or you know, your son or daughter is going to college. Those are sort of life events. There's a whole backdrop behind that around the things that kind of drive people, their motivations, the things that they gravitate towards, and are. Sort of repelled against, and so when we have those conversations, it becomes pretty clear, you know, whether or not an investor really is looking for something different that we would need to build a portfolio along these lines.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I think, um, as far as implementing these kinds of strategies um, or transitioning them th- traditional to uh, an ESG orientation, I always think about taxes and. IRAs, tax deferred accounts are are really easy to transition, because we don't have any tax issues. the The security can be sold within the context of the retirement account, and tax and gains are deferred. You don't have to pay taxes currently. Uh, it becomes those not those non retirement or taxable accounts that can get a little bit complicated. Uh, don't you agree? Yeah, I mean with any
3: movement between sort of investment strategies or change in investment approach, you know, one of the first things we certainly are looking at when we're engaging uh, investors is, you know, what are the ramifications to this? You know, one, from a risk standpoint, are we able to keep that risk, you know, commensurate with where the risk has been? And two, is there a way to get directly to their investment at a low level of tax impact, or is it going to require some type of a transition? And so, you know, if if the determination is made that we want to be able to get into a value space portfolio, that it's certainly critical and, and timely that we do so, you know, what we might do is just take a look at a, a part of the assets that we that we could, you know, turn over fairly with low impact and, and get it at least started into the into the portion of the portfolio that would make sense from an investment standpoint and, and a value space standpoint, and be able to maybe stage out the rest. Uh, you know, changing investment strategies, you know, can be you know can be a challenge, and, and it can sometimes take a, a lot of discussion back and forth before determining that that's the right move to make. And so, you know, whenever doing that, I'm going to certainly make that as simple and and you know lenient from a tax standpoint as possible. Uh, but you know, IRAs, you know, obviously it's it's a very simple move to be able to make that. Non IRAs, you know, I, I would still think that we'd want to make sure that the investment approach matches what they're looking for. And that taxes don't necessarily dictate that. Um, it's kind of saying, well, don't let the tax tail wag the dog, right? Particularly given that we don't know where tax rates are going to be you know, a year or two years or three years from now. We, we ha- kind of have the known right now and we have the unknown. And so you know, if the approach is, is deemed to be the right one, we want to make sure that we get into that portfolio in a very timely manner.
2: Yeah, it can take time. It it to yeah. transition. It could to could take years, and that that means that the the clients have uh, capital gains that they have to deal with, and that's not a bad thing. No, it's certainly it's very funny, and obviously
3: nobody likes to pay taxes, and we always seem to forget that it's really just the result of you know. What has been a tremendous market really for for a decade plus now? And so I think that's why we, you know, when we look at values-based portfolios, again, as I've said earlier, you know, a lot of it has to do with, with an investor's input. And so the tax discussion just allows us another point of dialogue to be able to have a discussion and have the investor have some input, right? What are some thresholds that they would be comfortable with in terms of Realizing those gains over what time frame would they be comfortable realizing those gains? And let's make sure that the portfolio meets those objectives. So it's really just another area for us to be able to quote unquote customize the experience.
2: Yep, I think that's right. Well, well, Jeff, um, this has been uh, such an interesting conversation. Many of our clients that we speak with are. Are concerned about this uh, this area. They they want their investments to match or, or, or to meet their values. And uh, these are conversations that we have. And and I can tell you that um, Aris is is really a, a a primary resource for us as a financial planning firm to um, to Im- impact client accounts and to into and, and to implement these kinds of strategies. So I thank you for. Uh, for all of your past work with my my clients, but also um, I look forward to to having these conversations with you and and, and many of our, our the clients that we work with uh, in the future. So thanks so much for for spending the time and and uh, talking about I think a a really interesting and important subject.
3: Well, it's it's certainly my pleasure, and it's our pleasure as well. And I, you know we appreciate the chance to be able to to have these discussions there. Uh, you know, fun isn't the right word, but they're interesting. And we can learn a lot about our investors by having these conversations. And we look forward to having a lot more of them.
1: Great. Thanks. Gentlemen, this has been a fantastic podcast. Jeff, thank you so much for being a great guest on the show. So much information, so much to digest there. Peter, I know that this is something that you have a conversation with your clients about, um, but there's a lot more people listening to this podcast than just your clients. So if people are concerned about either A, what they have in their portfolio that may be against what their values are, or if they want to make sure that they are investing in companies that are doing good in this in this arena, can they reach out to you and have that conversation?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think probably the best way to reach out to us is go, go to our website and, uh, and our contact information is there. Our, our website is
1: raskinplanning.com. Fantastic. Again, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. Peter, of course, thank you for bringing him on the show. And our last thank you is always reserved for you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Wealth is in the Details podcast with Peter Raskin. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Peter comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at Raskin Planning Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Wealth is in the Details podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Peter Raskin is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Securities offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker, dealer, member SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Sagemark Consulting, a division of Lincoln Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Affiliates and other fine companies. Raskin Planning Group is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.